0: That time again, it is time for The Bookcase with Kate and Charlie Gibson for, well, whatever time you're listening, and I'll allow my co-host and father to introduce himself.
1: Oh, I'm glad you threw in and father, since that comes now second (laughs) in your list of priorities. I'm Charlie Gibson, and it is good to have you back with us. And we've got a gooder this week, if you'll pardon that uh, use of the word. (laughs) This, like last week with Julie Otsuka, is uh, this week is Amity Gage is her name. G-A-I-G-E, and the book, it's really wonderful. It's called Sea Wife, and we discovered it late. It's been out for about a year, but I promise you, Sea Wife is a good read. Right, Kate?
0: It is a terrific read. I really enjoy her writing. And you're right. She's like Julia Tsuka in that she was sort of a revelation to me, but probably shouldn't have been. Dad gave me Sea Wife after he'd read it and I couldn't put it down. I think I read it in two days. Boy, I have trouble categorizing it in a genre because it has elements of mystery. It has elements of thriller, but really also too, I think it's a fictional family drama about marriage. And I think it's the fact that it's able to live in all of these genres and still be as
1: well-written as it is that really hooked me. It is all of those things. And she has insights, I think, into a marriage similarly to Sue Miller, similarly to Elizabeth Strout. But this marriage is set on a boat. The husband of the couple wants to sail around the world. His wife, Juliet, does not want to sail around the world. She's not a sailor. She's afraid of it. So they just buy a boat and sail in the Caribbean. But when you're in that kind of a confined space with two children, which they bring along, it is fraught with tension because they're so closely packed together. And as any sailor knows, you can have three thoughts of a rhapsodic sail and you have 25 thoughts of everything that went wrong. And that's what (laughs) sailors tend to talk about. And there are plenty of things that go wrong. And she uses a wonderful sense of foreshadowing in the book that you know things are going to go wrong at some point, but you don't know what. And she does a wonderful job of it. And she has a good sense of sailing as somebody who, as I did, used to sail.
0: Yes, you did. I have to say that every time that I've said to myself, boy, sailing sounds like a good idea. I have regretted it a lot. (laughs) Now I get it. First world problems. It's a first world problem. But I went on a vacation once on a sailboat with a bunch of friends from college. Sounded like a great idea. Really just ended up wet. Everything ended up <laughs> wet, and I'm not good at working on a boat. I'm terrible at working on a boat. So, in some ways when I was reading this, I was thinking to myself, what would my marriage be like if David came home one day and said, "You know what? I'm sick of America. Let's take the family and live on a boat." I think in some ways I would come at this from a similar perspective as the wife from this book, which is, really? What? A boat? And I I love the way she writes it. It's very tense, it's very taut. She has an amazing way of looking into The inner workings of marriage. In some ways, her writing reminds me of Sue Miller that way as well. You're right. I read Oh My Darling. I read Schroeder, both of which are also family dramas that are brilliant. She clearly wants to examine the institution and the concept of family,
1: and she's very good at it. And this one is set against the backdrop of sailing it is as we say i promise you a good read if you do this and it's written from two points of view it's written from the point of view of the wife juliet and it is also written in the logbook of the sail by her husband michael and you're wondering as you go along Why are we reading the logbook of his and her writing after the sale about the experience? Another piece of foreshadowing. You wonder about that, and then obviously it's all cleared up at the end. So a good read, Amity Gage, our conversation. Amity Gage, it is a pleasure to have you in the bookcase. And I apologize, we came to the writings of Amity Gage a little bit later. We discovered you just a few weeks ago and read Sea Wife and loved it, loved it. As we said in the introduction, it is a book about sailing, but it's also so much about a marriage and about a family. But the sailing, you showed a great knowledge of and affinity to sailing. Were you a sailor? Are you a sailor? First of all,
2: thank you so much for having me. Secondly, the answer to that is no. I was not, am not a sailor. I'm a wimp. I cling to any shoreline uh, possible, but it remains interesting to me why I chose to set a book at sea and on a boat. The story of the research around it is interesting, which is that I think for a writer, your feeling is you just have to know enough to imagine the rest. You know, there's a lot of writers. No one's life is so interesting that they can just mind that forever for a lifetime of writing. So I thought maybe I could just research. And I did do a lot of research about sailing in order to try and make it a kind of convincing rendering. And I was about halfway through writing the book when I realized with this cold dread, like, came over me that I was not going to be able to do it just from imagination and just from research. So I told my husband it was in the middle of December in 2016. And I said, I've got to go learn how to sail. I have to go and experience the pull of the sea and the wind and these things I can't read about. I went down to Grenada, the small um, Caribbean island nation, and there was a 10 day sailing course that I took with um, three other unlucky people. And two of those people happened to be a couple who were there together under some stress because sailing is stressful. And it almost seemed too good to be true because already I had my book. I had my marriage under strain. I had the nautical setting and then along came these real people. I felt that they showed me, as well as the experience of sailing, that I was on the right track. (laughs) But I'm so glad I did that sailing trip, because even though it was pretty terrifying, there were things, I was right, there are things like the, I, that I couldn't have known. I mean, you know this, but it's sort of like the sound of the wind through the rigging, for example. I couldn't have known that until I heard it with those high winds, the feeling of the relentlessness of the waves, and also like the, just the beauty of the ocean, which is what drew me to the setting in the first place.
1: Well, as a non-sailor, why in the world did you decide to put this couple and test their marriage On a boat, what, a 40-some foot boat uh, where they live in very close proximity. And for a couple that's struggling in their marriage, that's a wonderful setting. But how did you choose it and why?
2: Well, I think you actually just put it beautifully, which is how dramatic (laughs) to to have two people whose marriage already has these sort of failure points in a boat, the structure of a boat, and put them on the sea with, of course, their two children too. They're two lovely children who come to no harm, I would like to say. And I think I felt that what a dramatic, I almost thought of it as like a playwright or something, (laughs) like what a dramatic setting. It's just inherently dramatic if you set a boat from shore. Like what's going to happen? There's such unpredictability. Weather is so unpredictable. You're completely alone out there. And I just loved the drama of that. Of course, I love the allegory of it as well. So, and I think as a writer, I think of spaces that have a kind of allegorical quality, meaning like there already is going to be a meaning to what happens. So, It was it was funny, too, because the book came out during COVID and quarantine and all this. When I thought about what a crew is, you know, your family, your spouse and your children, too, or whoever in the blended family, whomever, that's your crew, for better or for Mm. worse. And you're going on a journey. In this case, it's Mm. extremely uh, Mm. explicit one, a literal one. But we all go on this journey with our crew Our fates are bound in a way. And I definitely felt that a great deal during quarantine, too. It was it seemed quite appropriate. My house was my boat in a way and my family was
0: my crew. The whole book is very tense. There's a sense of tension from the first page. And I was wondering sort of when you thought to yourself, "Okay, I really want this book to be taught really tight and have that tension? How did you go about saying, I'm really gonna apply that so that the reader maybe isn't in their comfort zone from the moment they start? Oh my gosh.
2: If I knew that I would just do it time and time again. But um, <laughs> I think that the book had a different form and also about halfway. I changed the two characters. So we've got Juliet, the wife and mother and Michael, the husband and father. And at one point they were both speaking from the same place and time. Halfway through, I felt that that wasn't taught enough. It wasn't, didn't have enough energy. So I put them in different time frames. So now Juliet starts the book in her husband's closet, reading, we've come to find, his logbook, his captain's logbook, and thinking about their trip, which of course includes some loss. So I felt that that was a smart choice. As soon as I did that, and we had Juliet reflecting on the trip and reading the logbook, and then we had Michael's real time logbook descriptions, that there was a real energy that was developed, a tension
1: between those two things. Katie talked about how tense and taut the book is. As I read it, I feel very much that way. I kept going with the music of Jaws, bunna, <laughs> bunna. something's <laughs> going to happen here. But John Irving said to us, which I thought was really interesting, right from the beginning, you have to have characters where you care about what's going to happen to them. And you have a sense that maybe it's not going to be great. And the foreshadowing in the book, I think, in Sea Wife is marvelously done. Why is she in that closet? And even it's foreshadowing that she's writing about the trip, but he's not. She's reading his logbook. He's not there. Why isn't he there? Or is he not there? It creates that tension and that taut quality to the book. I don't know how you do that as an author and build that kind of tension.
2: I think that the form of the book was something that excited me and that is unusual about the book. There are two voices and then finally a third when the little daughter's voice jumps in and they are formatted on the page. Michael's voice is kind of justified to the right and Julia's to the left and they braid, they're braided sometimes as frequently as every line and maybe i think what i was hoping for was that that sense of dialogue and the the book is really kind of a duet between these two voices much like a long married couple will tell a story Mm. with you know being like contradicting one another or or sort of expanding on what one another says so you feel like you're really in the middle of that dialogue even though they're not physically together it's the form of the book that helps contribute to the sense of tautness.
0: I love the term braided, by the way. I think that's a terrific term for what you did. Did you write his story all the way through, her story all the way through, and then braid them? How did you actually do it? It was just a hot mess.
2: I mean, (laughs) it was a mess. And I was like, I think the wise thing I did was just let go and say, this is a mess. And eventually it's going to come together. If you're really writing deeply enough, if you're imagining well enough, if you have done your research and you know these people well enough, you'll find the way to stitch these pieces together. I know some writers write A, B, C, D. I'd never done it that way. I opened a file. I started writing bits of his voice, whatever I thought was mostly funny. You know, there's like funny stuff that he says, funny sort of snarky stuff she says, That, of course, some of it is my own thoughts (laughs) as I move through my domestic space, (laughs) my complaints, or my friends, the women that I know, the things they said. Or then, of course, I find these beautiful bits of poetry. I find beautiful thoughts from, I I love poetry, and I throw that all in the file. And as I'm creating the structure of the book, I'm grabbing from the hot mess Mm. document. And that's how I'm keeping it vital, It's important to me to write a book where there's not long, dutiful exposition. Like I I admire people who can do that. But for me, I'm okay skipping that connective stuff and just being like, here's a poem. Here's a funny, you know, um, monologue on, I don't know, jogging or gender roles (laughs) or, you know, um, putting the kids to bed. And I think that for me, that was fun. And that I hope that that energy, I think that energy would kind of translate to the reader's experience. I think a reader can tell when you're doing dutiful writing. (laughs) Like if it's boring to you, writer, it's certainly not going to magically be interesting to the reader.
1: It's an interesting question that we've explored with writers. How do you know this paragraph really works and this paragraph goes in the waste paper basket? Do you read it to yourself? How does that process work in your own mind?
2: yeah that's a great question i think that what a writer does as she gets older is like learn how to really internalize the reader the dreamed of reader your ideal reader you know and to start to understand what that reader needs and wants in every moment so it's sort of like a sense of having listened to criticism for a while having gotten feedback for a while and you start to internalize that and you get a better sense of who your beloved is, your reader. For me, I'm, that beloved reader is always with me. Mm. I'm not trying to write a book that everyone's going to love, but those readers that love it, I'm, they're always in my mind. So I'm not going to ask them for too much. I'm not going to offer them too little, mm. <laughs> which I think is also a problem. Like you want a, a book that's challenging and chewy. You know, I think a lot of people want that. So I'm writing to that reader and trying to imagine, you know, what they need and what they want. Hmm. Some writers I know, certainly maybe in the past, didn't consider the reader and the reader wasn't with them. But for me, increasingly, I feel like there's a reader
0: by my side. You talked a little bit about poetry in this book. Poetry has come up in some of your other books. First of all, for me, I'm intimidated by poetry. For me, it's a little like cooking and baking. They're two different <laughs> arts. So, true. so I'm fascinated by, I mean, do you have formal training as a poet? And is it a skill that you like to, you're like, oh, how am I going to work poetry into this upcoming book of mine?
1: Oh,
2: that's a great question. So I was like a child writer. And I had mentioned <laughs> my dad earlier, you know, my dad recognized some skills when I was younger in poetry. So I began as a poet. And you know, it was juvenile, it was like adolescent poetry. I'm not saying it was great. (laughs) But, um, But I loved that form and that's what I began in. And I have over my career continued to just admire, no, I'm not, I never went and studied in any high level, the craft of poetry, but the values of the poet continue to be mine as a fiction writer. You know, I love to cherish the single sentence and write a sentence that is worth you know it has the same sort of density and economy as a, a line of poetry so i love that for me that's fun yeah. it's not a burden it's not ornamental it's just sort of one thing i love about writing so i think my background as or at least my early poetic works um, have have given me that cherishing of the individual sentence
1: but when you start You know where the marriage is in the terms of how they're relating. You get a sense of that in the boat. But then at the end, she has such a different feeling about him and about the sailing experience. I I love the way it evolved, but I wondered if you knew what she was going to feel at the end.
2: Mm, No, I didn't. I didn't. And that last scene, I don't want to be a spoiler, but like that was just, I unplanned and it felt suddenly there was a rightness to it. But no, I I didn't. I mean, the question of whether the writer can plan ahead is such an interesting one. And some do. I mean, you guys would know better than anyone at this point, how people do it. Some people have an outline, whatever, but for me, the metaphor I really like is waypoints, which is also a nautical metaphor, right? Sure. So when I'm running, I have waypoints. I'm like, okay, this is going to happen. They're going to get to a waypoint being, you know, coordinates in the Mm. middle of nowhere. And that's what it feels like. Okay, I just see that ahead. I'm going to go there. Once I get there, that location and that moment in time is going to tell me where to go next. So if Mm. I don't have waypoints in the journey, then I'm totally lost,
0: right? Mm -hmm. One of the realizations that I came to as a reader, is just one of the last things I wanted to, to say to you before we get into rapid fire When I was reading it, I was thinking, how did somebody who was politically conservative, a libertarian, marry somebody who's liberal? And then I thought to myself, oh my God, has it become so illogical to me that a conservative would marry a liberal? I mean, has it gotten to the point where it's like Protestants and Catholics in the past or, you know, or or Jews and Muslims, like, has, have we become so entrenched? That was a real realization for me that I, I was like, well, how did these people ever get married? And then I thought to myself, <laughs> oh, my God.
2: You, you are so <laughs>
0: right. I was so fascinated by
2: it as I was writing it to find out and to explore the idea of these sort of interpolitical marriages, which is now like kind of a radical thing to do. How weird. But there are, they do exist for sure. I mean, the sense some people say, you know, Michael's views are extreme. Well, not really. They're actually rather common. And this is that sense of the importance of the individual. And Juliet's more about the like society and belonging and the community. And they war over that. It ends up being quite a fateful, very, very fateful because there's a point in which Michael does not want help and he doesn't want the government to intervene. And that's more important to him than his own life. So it is Mm. it's a very fateful thing. You're absolutely right that interpolitical relationships, I think, are becoming more more
1: scarce.
0: Yeah. I think they're becoming like unicorn woolly mammoth kind of rare.
1: (laughs) It is though interesting that marriage is a continuing theme through all of your four books and how marriages work and the pitfalls that they go through, et cetera, et cetera. Do you feel you have a far better evolved? sense of how marriages work from your first book to your fourth?
2: Oh, it's always hard when people start insightfully pointing out the, you know, (laughs) the way that I'm kind of clinging to some of these same themes and coming back to the same well about, I am really unsure why it seems that say marriage is such a high stakes journey. It's again, it's inherently dramatic. The same way crossing the sea is inherently dramatic. Also in a marriage, I'd say there's three fates right? There's the fate of the one person, the fate of the other person, and the fate of the marriage. And they might not be the same. So it's fascinating to just already, there's such story there. There's three of those three fates.
0: I'm totally pro-marriage. What my father said to me was, I'm on my seventh marriage. It just happens to be to the same woman. Oh, that's brilliant. That in some ways, marriage is just a gamble that you're going to change at approximately the same rate in approximately the same way as the person you meet. This book does that really well, that
2: marriages
1: change. Yeah. And the hardest thing to do to me, I also said this to Kate, and I don't mean to be any kind of a philosopher, but the hardest thing is not to try to figure out what your partner needs. The hardest thing is to be able to convey what you need and how that fits into the marriage.
2: That's so beautiful.
1: And it is, I'm on my seventh marriage, but it's all to the same woman.
2: I'm increasingly grateful for my family in general. And I think when I was younger, and especially before I had children, I was a little bit more of an individualist and I was very ambivalent about the institution of marriage, which has a lot of problems in it to it. Um, But I think I have become more grateful for those bonds, even when they are slightly claustrophobic or limiting. That there's something perhaps even of value to the sacrifices that the individual makes when they're in the family. Something
1: beautiful about that. Amity Gage, it's a pleasure to talk to you and a pleasure to read you.
2: Thank you so much. I'm really honored to be here with you guys.
1: It's a wonderful book. Yeah. Thank you.
4: The first ever criminal trial of a former president is underway in Manhattan. It's one of potentially four trials facing former President Trump as he makes his third bid for the White House. What do voters think about his culpability and would a guilty verdict make a difference in the election? I'm Galen Druk, and every Monday and Thursday on the 538 Politics podcast, we break down the latest news from the campaign trail. We sort through the noise and zoom in on what really matters using data and research as we go. That's 538 Politics every Monday and Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. And we'll be looking at that this morning. First, though. It's the news, stupid. It is
1: the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the
4: hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from? And does it hold up today? Find the campaign throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Rapid fire for Amity Gage. What is the book that you haven't written? That is in the back of your mind. A book about
2: friendship. Mm. I have written about marriage for sure. Parenthood, definitely. The book that I just finished a manuscript is about mothers and daughters and fathers and sons. And I would really like to write a book about friendship and the value of that in life. Also the (laughs) complicated Mm. (laughs) nature of friendship. (laughs)
0: Author you will always read simply because they write like a list. Is that okay? Sure. Yeah.
2: How much time do you have? <laughs> okay, Jennifer Egan, Sigrid Nunez, love her. Janet Malcolm, who just passed away, but like I just think is was a wise woman, literary that a little more of a literary critic, cultural critic. Oh, Susan Choi, I really love. Most influential book in your life? I would say Rabbit Run, John Updike. I know, right? I am right. um, always a little bit embarrassed of my adoration and loyalty to John Updike. I think that somehow that book, in that moment in time, I was a young writer, read it. I think he's probably the was the best American stylist, you know, that. I know. And talk about poetry and poetry, and even even it's not necessarily poetic, but so intelligent. So there's such intelligence in that writing. Mm. There's such human truth in his observations, even when they're slightly icky or uncomfortable, they are so insightful. And I loved the I idea. I was like, you can write like that. Oh, cool. Also, we share a hometown. <laughs> I'm from Reading, Pennsylvania. And so is he. So when I read, and I think that's another reason it was so influential is because I could see the streets he was talking about and the sense of place, which was my, you know, mm. ambivalent hometown. And I just sort of stand in awe. I think the whole Rabbit series is brilliant.
0: If I wasn't a writer, I would be?
2: A journalist. Mm. Or the queen of an imaginary country.
1: <laughs> <laughs> your, your, your journalism your journalism is broadcasting or in print
2: i would say print is what i guess mm. i think i've always just admired journalists and i read a great deal of journalism and book length as well sure. and i'm fascinated and i think one thing that i borrow from journalism as a career is the research that i do when i'm writing a novel. And I think that's my thwarted journalism career Uh because I, you know, with Sea Wife, the amount of people I had to interview, I embedded myself with a sailing family for a brief period of time, endless emails between people to figure out, you know, what the sailing life is like. So there's a lot of investigation Mm. for me when I write fiction. So I think that's my thwarted journalism.
1: Was there a moment in time when you said to yourself, I can do this. I can be a writer. As a vocation for my life.
2: Mm, last year.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: 2020. I
0: don't know. <laughs> Yesterday. Um, when you called me. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, I,
2: like I said, I was a child writer. So I had this, I think, a real sort of superpower, which was that I was, ident- I identified myself as a writer very young. So mm. that sense of myself feels unshakable, mm. but, the, but, the, the, but the ability to move through the world as a writer, it depends on many other people. So that was a little bit more provisional.
1: <laughs> Amity Gage, we talked about the fact that while this is set on a sailboat, it really is, I think, as much as anything a book about the arc of a marriage. And it's really interesting, as we alluded to in our conversation, about how the marriage between Michael and Juliet evolves. It's such a tense coupling,
0: the two of them. And I love that she wrote their story separately and then braided them together to come up with the tension in that book. I love that she talks about, in the interview, marriage being, in some ways, life's biggest gamble. She has incredible skill exploring the complications of marriage and of family. We've plugged Sea Wife. Now, in the process of reading Amity to get ready for the interview, I also read a couple of other books of hers, and I want to make a little plug for Schroeder. Schroeder is an amazing book. It's written by a father who has kidnapped his daughter, to the custody agreement. So right away, you know this is gonna be a narrator you're going to have trouble sympathizing with. And by God, if by the end of the book, you weren't rooting for him, he loves his daughter pathologically and he can't have her because of this divorce and other mistakes that he's made in his life. And this road trip that he takes with his daughter is just, it's beautiful. It's sad. It's, it's a really, it's a
1: terrific read. So that's my plug for Schroeder. Well, (laughs) it's interesting when we find a book that we love and we did with Sea Wife, Kate, like you do goes back and reads <laughs> reads earlier novels by that author. Um, she's more prolific, I guess, is that the word, or exhaustive in her research on an author than, than I'm afraid her father is. But I'm going to read Schroeder now because uh, you've liked it so much and because after reading Seawife, I'm such an admirer of Amity Gage's prose. So Amity Gage, Seawife, and if you're so inclined, Schroeder. Our bookstore this week is bookends in Winchester, Mass., It's been a store that's been around for a while, but it has new owners. Jillian Hartline and Lauren Tiedemann have bought the store. Brave thing to do. And we talk to them about what it's like having a bookstore in a small Boston suburb in what is an incredibly neat building that they occupy. So here's our conversation with them. Lauren Tiedemann and Jillian Hartline are joining us from Bookends. In Winchester, Massachusetts, a suburb of Boston. It's good to have you both with us. Jillian, let me start with you. The best feature of Bookends, to your mind.
3: Well, starting off just the way it looks from the curb. The curb appeal is great. It's a beautiful store.
1: You are new owners and I on the website, I love the picture of the building. Jillian, describe the building to me. It looks like it's straight out of the 19th century.
3: It is. It's it's gorgeous. It has the turret In the front, people joke that it's like we're princesses living in this magical bookstore castle. (laughs) It is definitely a, it, it just shares magic all around. If
0: I'm walking into your store these days, what titles are you really excited about right now?
3: Oh,
5: goodness. So, so many things. So we just launched a book club in our store. We once a month meet for book discussion and wine in the evenings. We usually close at six and we reopen again at seven to nine once a month for this discussion. Um, So we just read The Woman in the Library, which is a murder mystery set at the Boston Public Library, um, which is really fun. So we definitely recommended that to a lot of people. One of my personal go-to recs is The Seven and a Half Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle by Stuart Turton which is kind of Agatha Christie meets Doctor Who. It's really (laughs) fun. It keeps you guessing until the end.
3: (laughs) And we also have been working a lot with local authors. There's so many authors in the Winchester area that love our store and come in all the time. So we just have so many local authors. What are some of your favorites? I just read The Little French Bridal Shop, Jennifer Dupuy. Mm -hmm. It's an adorable story and it takes place in Massachusetts. I love reading things that take place locally so I can kind of visualize it. (laughs) I think it makes it fun. And then I just started another French book, the Paris bookseller. Oh yeah, by Carrie Marr. By Carrie Marr. So we definitely.
1: Tell me, Lauren, what you said you always wanted to own a bookstore. What hooked you on that idea of working on selling books and then owning a store? So
5: I've always been a bookworm. My parents read out loud to me all the time as a kid. Um, My mom used to read picture books all day, every day. Um, And my dad, when he got home from work, we'd pick up like a longer chapter book, usually a classic. We did all the Chronicles of Narnia and the Wizard of Oz and read a chapter every night. So books was very much my world from the beginning. And then my mom started working at Barnes & Noble when I was a kid. And so I kind of grew up as a bookstore kid. But it was really Harry Potter that hooked me on books and the world of books and the magic of reading. What about you,
0: Jillian? What was your gateway drug? <laughs>
3: <laughs> for a while, I wanted to be a librarian, but I don't know. I fell into the retail world and I fell in love with like getting the right thing for the person mm. shopping that just there's some sort of thrill about it. Mm. Just being around the books and being around the community and, the, you know, in the bookstore is really the thing that hooked me is that feeling of being with people who also love to read and getting to talk about things with them and find out what they're reading and sharing what you're reading it it's the community it really is
1: So we thank Lauren and Jillian, their store on Main Street in Winchester, Mass., just outside of Boston. Next week, we're going to have Rebecca Mackay with us. She has written a new book. I have some questions for you. And my questions to her really revolve around whether this is a novel or a mystery or how she sees it, because it's all of those. And it raises some interesting questions about how you approach prisoners who might be innocent. We'll get into all that next week.
0: I think it also beautifully gets into maybe some of the numbness that we have felt about violence towards women, because there are so many stories about violence Mm -hmm. towards women, and I think she does an amazing job uh, exploring that. The Great Believer is also an amazing book. Was nominated for the National Book Award and made me a Rebecca Mackay Believer. Also, it's now the shameless plug time on the bookcase with Kate and Charlie Gibson. If you are a listener, we would just love it if you would take a moment to get on your platform and write us a review or give us a five star rating. It really helps the program. and we love to hear from you we
1: really do read everything you send we do indeed and take suggestions and uh, in a number of cases we have found listeners suggesting bookstores that we have featured uh the credits those who take who make rather this program possible and after that Uh, A final thought from Amity Gage.
0: The Bookcase with Kate and Charlie Gibson is a production of ABC Audio. It's produced by David Canada in conjunction with Surecam Productions. Brenda Salinas-Baker is our senior producer and Laura Mayer is our executive producer. We give special thanks to Josh Cohen, Elizabeth Russo, Nania McLean, and Cameron Chartavian. It
2: is the responsibility of free men to
0: trust and to celebrate what is constant. Birth,
2: struggle, and death are constant, and so is love.
0: Lovely.
1: Very nice.
4: As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning.
1: First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is
4: the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid.